0: Um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support.
1: Hi, you're listening to the Wall Street Oasis podcast, a podcast about breaking into the world of finance, along with interviews with those who have. I'm Alex Grodnick, your host, and today we are speaking with Rohit Carr, Rohit and I became friends when we both worked at Hoolihan Loki, even though I was in LA and he was in London and then New York. Rohit now lives in Hong Kong and works at a hedge fund. He's in LA for just a couple of days and is staying at my house. Rohit did not want to do this, but I told him it was either this or he gets a hotel room. So here we go. Rohit, hi. So wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is, it's called real vision and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gundlach, Stanley Miller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the real vision revolution, visit com slash WSO. Tell us what you've done.
0: Yeah. So we met while we were at Hulan in New York. I went back to uh, London, um, I finished off the analyst program at Hulan, so that was about two years. Um, the first year and a half in London, and then I transferred internally to our New York office. Um, the impetus around moving back to New York was kind of twofold. First, I you know wanted to be on the principal side and recruiting for opportunities in London. I mean, this is before Brexit, um, and interesting enough, it's actually like harder. For people, it was actually harder for expats or American expats to find opportunities in London um, for for a few reasons. First, um, a lot of funds would require you to get sponsored, right? So, especially like kind of smaller funds. But for the larger funds, that even if they got past that hurdle of like giving you a visa, um. You know, uh, London super cosmopolitan, the distressed market in London is very specific to certain geographies, right? So, you know, back in 2013, 2014, when the Spanish real estate market was kind of in the doldrums, um, people were looking for, you know, analysts with Spanish language skill sets. Or similarly, I mean, during the European financial crisis, like from 2012 through 2015, let's say, um, you know, basically every European preferry, periphery, um, as well as a lot of, like, developed European markets like France and Germany had interesting distressed investment opportunities. But to be able to kind of look at those deals, you need to speak either French, German or Spanish and whatever language was in vogue at the time for a particular restructuring, you know, scenario. Um that, was, that would have been, like, super helpful. So <clears throat> the big challenge is, like, having that second language skill set, which I think a lot of, at least, I mean, I, I speak Bengali, which is not very helpful. Um, I know a little bit of France, French and a little bit of Spanish, but it's not, like, you know, business fluent. Um, so those are the two, like, challenges I had in terms of interviewing and, and finding opportunities in London. And so that was one big impetus for me to move back to New York and, like, the market for opportunities on the principal side in the U S especially New York are a lot greater. Um, and the second thing is like my twin brother was in New York and, you know, I had a lot of friends in New York. Um, so just family and friends, you know, and also like being outside the U S for three years, like, you know, you miss that a lot. Yeah. You're from Ohio. Um, Grew up in Ohio. Well, I was born in India, born in India, grew up in Ohio, went to college in Cornell, uh, so I double majored in math and economics at the time. Um, while I was at Cornell, I had two summer internships at J.P. Morgan.
1: And like they're just regular investment being in,
0: um, in So my first internship was uh, it was actually my offer was from Bear Stearns and their FAST program. So that stood for Financial Analytics Structuring and Transactions. Um, the FAST program was essentially like a gateway into sales, trading, or structuring. And this was like, this was like a prestigious program within the Bear Stearns internship, right? So, um, MBS trading was what Bear was known for, and if you did well, you could. I mean, it was a it was a model which was very like, kind of old Wall Street and like and encompassing like greed at the time, right? So if you did well, you would essentially eat what you kill, and there were you know people that were millionaires by early twenties, mid twenties. Wow. Um like Ace Greenberg had a philosophy. He was like, I don't want an Ivy League degree, I want a PSD degree. Right. Porsche. Yeah. Yeah. I read that book about um, counting paper clips. Yeah. So and, and the culture at Bear was like very different than a lot of the other investment banks. Um so anyways, yeah, I was fortunate to have an offer at the in the FAST internship program.
1: So you thought Okay, so I, I thought I'm gonna be a millionaire in a couple of years.
0: Well uh, <laughs> I mean, I I think outside of that, I I like the idea of, you know, you had the opportunity of of being the maker of your own destiny, right? If you, like, worked hard and did well, like, you'd be incentivized accordingly. And you were incentivized accordingly. And and I think that was kind of rare relative to a lot of the other investment banking programs where, I mean, you hear things like, oh, certain groups are a lot more political um, than others. And, And the whole, like, networking aspect wasn't something I was, like, super, you know, I did very well when I was in college and something I've had to like learn, get those like interpersonal skills better. Um, so I like the idea at bear. Like you didn't, I mean, it wasn't like a political environment. It was like, you know, right. If you did well,
1: you're a smart person. You can come there and just crush work. Right. And just who cares about all the politics stuff. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, so I had the offer letter in March of 2008 and you know, I remember like the week after that, the bear stock price was just—you know—one day it was down five percent. Next day it was down ten, fifteen percent. By that Sunday, like J.P. Morgan had made an offer for Bear, and initially the offer was like two dollars a share. And I think it was ultimately bought for ten dollars a share. Um, and pretty much every group was caught at Bear except the except the FAS for for interns. Um, cause JP Morgan had their own interns and that's a right. big bulge bracket. So they have a large internship class. Um, so fortunately, and I, I was like 95% convinced, you know, I, my internship was gone and I'd have to go back to Ohio and find something else to do that summer, which is going to be a huge bummer. Um, fortunately they kept the FAST program. Um,
1: somehow bear said these are our best interns. You should keep this. I yeah I, I, yeah
0: so uh, so in so for that first year or for those first months JP Morgan kept the fast group okay. um so I was an intern within the fast group I see they kept the And group. and and the logic I think from JP's point of view was like look this program makes sense I mean it's a it was a great way to see like the different roles within MBS trading like um within the MBS product group right so like structuring sales and trading um, and fast was essentially like uh, the center of that, like three prong circle. Got it. Um, and people from fast after the first year went to one of those three prongs. That was my sophomore year. So yeah, I was fortunate enough to have the sophomore oh, okay. year. Uh, so, uh, my junior year, I had an offer in this group called pricing direct, which is pricing, like just typical, uh, structured products so from, from, you know, credit card loan, ABSs to just mortgage-backed securities. Right. Um, You know, I saw pretty quick, I mean, there's a kind of a learning curve for looking at structured products, but at the end of the day, once you get over the kind of this learning curve, it's, you're doing the same thing over and over again. Um, And so when I went back to campus, right, I had friends that had, internships in more typical like investment banking groups like m&a or certain you know industry groups like retail or tmt and their breadth of experience was a lot greater than mine right and i think that's generally the case for any sales and trading versus investment banking where in sales and trading you're looking at just one product whether it's interest rate derivatives or you know cds on a particular industry um or like fx right so so uh, you know i i felt like i didn't really have the kind of um i felt like i didn't it wasn't really uh intellectually like broad like there's not like a lot of challenge after you get over that learning curve because you're literally doing the same thing over and over again
1: right you can make a lot of money but yeah
0: you can make i mean right and i think that's you know I have friends that are in sales and trading and they've done well, but like their big frustration is like they you get bored because you're doing kind of the same thing over and over again. right
1: no job's perfect that right. right okay
0: um whereas on the investment banking side, I mean you're looking at you're you could argue like on a big picture level you're doing the same thing over and over again, but you're looking at different situations and like each situation is idiosyncratic in and of themselves, like no business is the same um no opportunity is the same, so
1: So that's what you wanted to do. You said, I want to go do...
0: Right. And I was more kind of focused on the private equity side than on the...
1: Right. And so the path to private equity is get a regular investment-making job.
0: Right. Um, So after college, I had an opportunity at a company called Terrigen Power, which is a renewable-focused IPP, independent power producer. Um, So Terragen was backed by two large U.S. infrastructure private equity firms, Arclight Capital and uh global infrastructure uh G- gip global infrastructure not partners partners yeah. yeah um so these are these are super you know smart like uh p firms and uh you know i had the opportunity to be like the first analyst on the finance team at terragen so the role on on this team was essentially doing like kind of infrastructure private equity it was to build out the the uh, the portfolio at Terragen. So there's a few development projects we were building out. We built out the largest wind farm in California. I think the largest wind farm in the U.S. at the time. So it's a 1.2 gigawatt facility in Tehachapi, California. Um, And at the time, like, I mean, given my background in kind of was more on the sales and trading side, was, this was like trial by fire uh, finance for me. So going through like financial models, um, it, this was more like kind of project finance and, and mm-hmm. kind of like different stage private equity. Um, but, you know, again, I studied math and econ at Cornell, didn't take a lot of like finance or accounting courses. So everything I was learning was kind of on the job, completely new. Um, and it was, I mean, looking back at it, it was probably one of the most rewarding experiences professionally. Um, and so I, I did this for about a year and a half at Terragen. Where, where was this? This was in New York. New York. Um, I did this for about a year and a half at Terragen. Um, and I left to go to the, uh, to join the master's program at LSE. Um, so they had a program called, it was a master's in finance and private equity, um, so what was unique about this was there weren't a lot of masters programs that had a private equity like core curriculum aspect. Right. I've never even heard of that. Yeah. Um so this it was this was taught by a guy named Felda Hardeman who teaches the private equity course at HBS and he's also a uh, uh a partner emeritus at Bessemer Venture Partners. He's on like the Forbes um Midas thirty of VCs. Um, and so what was really awesome about this was it was taught in the kind of HBS case system. So you're doing a case, you know, through the week. Mm-hmm. Um, and on Friday, Felda through his like amazing Rolodex of contacts would actually bring in the principles that worked on, on, right. on these transactions. So, you know, for me having studied, you know, economics and math, which even, I mean, which had a very theoretical bent because I, I took a lot of, uh, even on the math side, right? Like, and and on the econ side, I took courses that would overlap for both majors. So if you're looking at, like, mathematical economics, it's essentially a lot of theory-based courses. Like, you know, um, it's, I mean, econometrics and, and things. Oh, econometrics isn't very... Right. I don't really, ca- I don't really care where the course is. <laughs> I got um, it. <laughs> Not the so so, so it, it was unique in terms of, like, having an academic experience that was super applicable to right. what I wanted to do. Yeah, exactly. Um so that was that's that's really the reason why I left Terrigan. Um and it, I'd never been to Europe or London. How'd you hear about this program? Uh, let's see. You're typing private equity
1: uh, masters into Google.
0: Um. So, I I think a lot of it was the encouragement of my parents. That they wanted me to kind of get another degree, mm-hmm. and so I. You know, at the time, like an MBA, you know, usually requires work experience. Right, you were pretty and so I, I had to offer from LSC after college without any work experience. Okay. Um, and the, I, 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 LSC actually didn't let me defer the offer, so I had to apply again. Unfortunately, I, I was accepted the second time as Lucky well. Lucky you. Um, but uh, but well, so the two aspects that were unique was one, it was a course that was focus on private equity and that's kind of what i thought i wanted to do um and two it was just a year long
1: it's a year long and it was one course
0: yeah well it, i mean there's it wasn't just one course but it was a uh, you know it's a year-long program you're taking like seven different courses mm-hmm. but kind of your 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 main course is this private equity course and you do your thesis on that course got it so i did my thesis like my thesis paper was like buying a wind farm in america basically um, so after graduating from LSC, I had an offer at who in the financial restructuring group.
1: Okay. So do, do people go from that program into investment banking or can, do some of them get private equity jobs?
0: Uh, yeah. So we had about a third or a little bit more than a third that actually went into consulting. Okay. Yeah. That's which is what you were saying. Uh, I mean, yeah. about, you know, your MBA class. That's how business school works.
1: Consulting is the main path. Um,
0: with a few people going into investment banking, I don't think too many people got placed into P directly. Maybe one person or two people, right? Um, because again, I mean, this program didn't require any work experience. Yeah, and any. private equity requires, it requires work requires, experience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay,
1: yeah. okay. So you had a job with you had an offer from Hulahans
0: Restructuring Group. No idea what financial restructuring was before I, you know, right? Nobody applied does. To, yeah. Um, so from my internship class back at uh, when I when I was at Bear, I had a buddy named Jigji Adani, who I stayed good friends with. And so after, he, he was a year ahead of me. Um, so after he graduated, he joined the restructuring team in New York at, with Hulan. And um, so through his kind of advice, I mean, he got to work on, I think he was the one analyst that was working on the Lehman transaction. Um, and so he was like, look, if you're interested in credit, and this is a super important time for credit in Europe... And this was 2012 when I graduated. So, right kind of, this is the first time people were starting to talk about Greece, right? Um, You know, you had worries about like periphery countries, you know, falling. Uh, You had a huge debt maturity wall that was coming to you that would have had to get refinanced or restructured. Um, So, just kind of on an opportunity perspective, on like a macro level. He said it would be super interesting. And this was again, right after the financial crisis. So there's not a lot of invested banking deals going on. So I also had friends that were in, you know, big bulge brackets that literally had kind of not so great, um, analyst experiences and that they, you know, were working on just pitch books and there wasn't a lot of deal activity. Right. Um, and I thought, for me at that point in my career, like the most important thing is, you know, being on live transactions and, you know, getting to get getting to be involved or having the opportunity to be involved in um in you know, real deals instead of just working on pitch books. Mm-hmm. I mean sure you like have some learning from putting a pitch book together, but it's not like working on a deal, right? It's you don't go through the full like all of the aspects of the transaction, right? So Um, that was the other big kind of consideration. Um, so yeah, I, so we met like kind of that summer. Right.
1: uh, So you had an offer to go to Hulahan's London office. London office. Yeah. And then, yeah, you talked about in the beginning how you recognized private equity was what you wanted to do. I mean, clearly you, you recognized that early on you went to a master's program. Right. Tailored on private equity. But... Talk about why private equity is so appealing. Like, why do so many people want to do it? Why don't people want to do investment banking? Like, outside of like maybe you can make a little bit more money and work a little bit less hours. Yeah. Like, what's more appealing about it?
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, at least for me, um, and having had the opportunity to work at Teragen early on, and not really going through that like in you know investment banking analyst right right after college, um, like in private equity, you're a principal, so you you know you're putting capital where your mouth is like you're looking at and again again i guess like every private equity experience is different like you know there's firms like bain capital and apollo that you know and kkr that are very different in terms of how they approach deals and how the analysts and associates and the teams like kind of you know look at transactions um but i guess in in private equity unlike investment banking there's uh, there's a lot of like I would say time leakage if you know for a euphemism of like not waste you know not doing like kind of
1: and There's time large. leakage yeah yeah
0: because you, you're I mean a lot of banking is kind of like looking at doing marketing exercises right because you're trying to you're essentially an advisor right, right. whereas there's... on the private equity side you're a principal like you're you know your firm is putting the capital right there's money to, at risk there's always right. something to do right Okay. And it's more, and the gravity of the situation is higher because of that. Sure. And I'm not saying like in investment banking, you know, it's like a, it's not serious or anything. It's just very serious. I mean, it's, it's serious. And yeah, there's a level of stress too, that comes with working investment banking, but it's more like, I feel like the stress in in banking is more, you know, like internal, like deadline type stress. It's not like, no, well, it's
1: client service. Yeah, it's client and the, service. Exactly. The reputation of the bank, and there, right. they, and there's still million, multi-million dollar fees at stake. Right, right. But there's not your there's, principal, your investors' money.
0: Yeah. Um, and I was speaking with a firm called Ice Canyon for like almost three, four months. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the process of like hedge fund recruiting is you have a few rounds of like phone interviews. Um, a lot of the conversations on on those calls are Relate to your experience, like kind of the deals you worked on before. Right. What was the deal? What'd you do? Exactly. What what was the the outcome? outcome? Right. Okay. Um, and so I was, and you know, within different hedge funds, you're either intervening for to work with a particular portfolio manager who covers a specific industry, or maybe you know you're a generalist somewhere. Um, In this role, I would have been working with uh, the portfolio manager who covers global energy. So having someone that had some energy experience was right. Super your ter- relevant. Teragen, yeah. so that- exactly. So they saw my experience at Teragen, and you know, that was really interesting to him um, because there were opportunities on the renewable side that were starting to pick up.
1: Right. So two right. phone interviews, and then what? Two.
0: It was. It wasn't just two phone. It was a few phone interviews, then a case study. I did my case study. On uh, Dynagy what they right? say yes, pitch us an investment? Yeah, which uh, they I mean the the case study is, is pretty broad. It's like you know take a look at this company, tell us where you would invest. So you have the opportunity to invest across the capital structure. Uh, you can invest in the company's bonds, the bank debt, you know the equity. You could, right. So, sh- so you they say go you- long or short. Right. So it's you know
1: that's that's your work in investment banking. Right. But without the kind of recommendation piece. Right. So. You took that home and you spent a couple of days looking at that.
0: Yeah, um, and so so the challenge for me was, you know, I worked for Terragen where I looked at renewable, you know, so solar, wind, geothermal companies, and Dynegy, you know, is a merchant IPP, right? So they their focus is on coal and natural gas, and I'd never like looked at a natural gas generating model or even a co-generating model before um so it was the challenge was like kind of building that by myself building like a financial model for um those two technologies by myself um so ultimately i was able to figure it out i mean clearly because you got the job right um but but yeah so anyways i mean that the case study process was probably like the longest aspect of that because i've I remember submitting my case study and then having, like, follow-up, like, three or four follow-up calls just on the case study. Like and Them th- asking so, you questions about your model.
1: Yeah. like I, We
0: went through almost, like, line by line with my, oh my model. God. Which maybe, I mean, uh, there's probably some funds that do that. I mean, again, like, the interview process for, I guess, hedge funds is very idiosyncratic. There's not, like, a typical process.
1: I mean, they're going to be paying you a lot of money. They want to make sure right. you're the right guy.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. So uh, again, the I was in New York. This fund was in L.A.
1: Right. It's a I, it's a part of Canyon Capital, right?
0: It's a joint venture with Canyon. With Canyon yeah.
1: Capital, the big real estate. Uh, yeah. Private equity fund. Okay. Hedge fund. Hedge fund.
0: Yeah. Um, I'd never been to L.A. before. Yeah. You know, these were calls at like six, seven p.m. New York time, um, to facilitate you know the time with the. time these guys were free in LA. Um, and then, you know, Skype calls and things like that. And I flew out here for my final round interview. Um, I remember when I got here, like, you know, one of the guys on the team, like had a convertible and like, we were, he was driving around the city and I was like, man, this is (laughs) amazing. Um, you know, and this was, I, I moved back to New York right when there was like the polar vortex so this is it's like crazy, crazy cold. Right. Um, and so going to LA like after that, <laughs> that probably like helped seal the deal in terms of... Um, I think Hawaii, they knew that. In, Picking up from yeah. the
1: airport and the convertible. Um, yeah.
0: And so I, I remember like having lunch on like a Sunday uh, with the PM in Manhattan Beach. Here I'm like, man, like looking at the ocean, it's like 75 degrees, sunny. Um, so that that definitely like kind of helped convince me that And this is is when
1: you and I reconnected. We haven't haven't talked in a while and called me up and said, hey, I might be moving to L.A. Right. I was like, oh, shit. That'd be cool. Yeah. Take take the job.
0: Um, So I moved to L.A. in the beginning of August. Um, And, yeah, so I started at ICE. 2014. 2014, yeah, Yeah. beginning of August 2014. Um, And so, yeah, I just started at ICE, like pretty like within a week of moving here so um got acclimated like i hadn't driven a car in eight years yeah <laughs> at that time. i
1: remember you banged up your rental car pretty good yeah
0: <laughs> um <laughs> so it definitely had some like kind of uh growing pains or whatever you know getting into la right um but yeah i mean having been here i i really fell in love with the city
1: yeah, it's tough not to. Yeah. And how long you know, what, How long did, what did you work for ICE for? Uh,
0: about two years. Two years. Um, and what happened? So at the time I joined... Um, well, actually, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure I can... Well, you don't want to say this? So don't, I'm looking just, at like a non disparity so clause just, with... Uh, let's not
1: talk about that then. So they just say we now you work at a hedge fund in Hong Kong.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I say, I mean...
1: Just say what you, don't say anything if you don't want to. Yeah.
0: It's probably better not to like okay. talk about returns and shit. Like yeah, just, just, um, just, say you've
1: got an opportunity.
0: Yeah. So I ended up having an opportunity in Hong Kong after two years. Um, and you know, I'd never been to Hong Kong before. Um, I didn't want to leave LA, but the opportunity was pretty interesting in the mm-hmm. sense that, you know, I'd have a little bit more autonomy. And the structure was set up whereby, you know, it was again more of a kind of eat what you kill model in the sense that you have a PL and you're getting points on that PL. Right. You're
1: going to be making your own investment decisions as opposed to just like supporting. Yeah, I mean, you,
0: I'm still going through an investment committee. Obviously,
1: that's how um, funds work. But like but, in LA, you supported a guy. He would say, take a look at this. You take a look at it. In Hong Kong exactly. now, yeah. at this new job, like, you're the guy. Right. Okay.
0: Right. Um, so I have more autonomy to like kind of look at. To try to find opportunities um right and and, and know, this
1: this opportunity was like just as fast you called me and you said i'm moving to la and you called me and said hey i'm moving to hong kong yeah it's like oh, okay and like you moved there and like you started working like the next day it was like a super yeah I, I started working like <laughs> a, a week it's like you've had a pretty successful little career here how do you do it like what do you attributed to what can other people try to learn from you
0: no, well, I don't think I've had a super successful career. You so
1: you make a lot of money, right? Uh, yeah, but uh, I you mean you got to live in some cool places and you make a lot of money and I think a lot of people would would
0: be Sure. Yeah. I think you know, having the drive to like kind of want to do better is important. Mm-hmm. Um I think being open like again, I, I don't know if this is a good thing, but I've I don't have a lot of ties to you know, when I left London, like I didn't. There wasn't. I never really had a relationship. And in, in well, you London, had right? I mean, so You like,
1: had a girlfriend here and stuff. But like, you're open to moving to an entirely yeah. new place you've never been to right. and starting work the next day. Right. Okay, I, 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 I'll buy that.
0: Yeah, and maybe I mean it's because I was born in a different country and like I'm. You know, I'm. I'm not super afraid about like meeting new people and you know, getting accustomed to. Or adapting to a different like world,
1: right? You said at the beginning of the call you were just kind of more yeah. of a book smart person, but from what I know about you, you're pretty outgoing. Personally, you like to go up to strangers at bars and <laughs> strange women at bars.
0: <laughs> I feel like I'm outgoing when I want to be. Um, I don't think that's like my def- default personality. Right. I think so my I'm, default personality is more introverted.
1: So that maybe it, that's like you do it because it's not your personality. So like you go over over the top to like compensate.
0: Maybe. I don't know if I would say I go over the top, but...
1: Well, over the top for for who you are.
0: Yeah, for who I am, but... Yeah. mm, Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, I think if I were to think, you know, for the next five years of my life, I want to be in a place where um, I can have more responsibility and autonomy going forward, Um, and I feel like... You know continue to kind of constantly learn right like the stuff i'm i'm doing right now i mean one aspect that's interesting is uh, just recently right like at your end india incorporated a new bankruptcy code um which is gonna make the opportunity for investing in distressed investments in india a lot more compelling for a few reasons one um you know, this bankruptcy code says that anyone that has claims of at least $1,500, right, um, can go to the NCLT. It stands for, NCLT stands for like National Criminal Law Tribunal or something like that in India. Um, So the NCLT will then appoint a independent resolution professional, and that um, IRP has 180 days to resolve a restructuring. If that doesn't happen, the company gets liquidated, right? <laughs> wow. So yeah, this sounds aggressive, and it, it's it's meant to be, um, because historically what's happened is you know a lot of Indian companies will just willfully default and drag on, you know, uh, a restructuring process for years. So imagine if you're if you lent someone money and they just basically, you know, tell you they're not going to be able to pay you, you know, and your that claim. Nothing happens to that claim for the next three years. That's a terrible return on investment. Your money gets locked up, and it's one reason why it, <clears throat> you know there haven't been a lot of institutional investors um, looking at opportunities in India, at right. least on the distressed side, right? Um, so with this new bankruptcy code in place, it's it's meant to kind of you know make the opportunity for investing in distressed securities a lot more interesting um, or a lot easier for kind of foreign investors like hedge funds because you know as a distressed investor right the company I mean you have leverage on these companies now right because you know you file a claim with the uh, NCLT I mean they have 180 days to resolve the restructuring right. if they can't do that you know yeah. the promoters I mean uh, whose wealth is tied up in this firm I mean he's going to be at a huge loss if the firm gets liquidated. So, <clears throat> I mean, there's going to be a huge market for Indian distressed opportunities going forward. And so I think by moving to Hong Kong, I wouldn't have known about this if I didn't take this job in Hong Kong, right? And it's kind of expanded my view on kind of other opportunities in Asia. And what we were talking about earlier, um, which is, I think, the, you know, when situations are a little bit more obscure, obscure or niche, um, you know, just in general, when there's like higher barriers to entry, the potential like return profile on an investment is also higher, um, to kind of compensate for those things. And that's certainly the case for like, if you look at the bank loan market in India, right. I mean, that's definitely the case. Um, I'd say distressed investing in Asia is a little bit more different than looking at a uh, distressed opportunity in like the U.S. for a Chapter Eleven process because your a lot of these transactions are negotiated transactions with the promoter, right? So whereas in the U.S., the owner of the business, the yeah, promoter. the promoter in in Asia, I mean, the promoter is the term that's Got it. like the owner, the you know, the entrepreneur or the you know, the founder. Um. So. Yeah, there's there's definitely aspects of like in, investing in like an Indonesian company or an Indian company where you know there's third world aspects like quote unquote, like leakage right like where you know you might have a uh, you know not so uh, virtuous promoter that you know takes capital from his firm. Um, And this is probably like standard practice in a lot of EM countries. And so if you're a distressed investor, I mean, how do you protect against that? It's really hard to. Um, I mean, the best solution is just, I mean, this is generally like a risk that's priced into the security. You're getting a higher yield investing in like a Indonesian coal company than you would be investing in like Peabody Energy, right? Which is a U.S. It's like the biggest U.S. coal company here
1: yeah yeah so it sounds like you're seeing some cool stuff eye opening eye opening things so wish you luck lots of good luck and distress investing and thanks for being on the podcast with
0: me yeah you're welcome
1: and thank you for listening check us out on iTunes or at wallstreetoasis.com and stay with us there's lots more coming